Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Barbara Diamora to the podcast. Barbara is here to talk about her son, Nicholas, who lived with autism. Nick was non-speaking for the first 12 years of his life until a program called RPM gave him a way to communicate with the world and set him on a path of advocacy for the autism community. Tragically, Nicholas passed away from a seizure in May of 2023, but Barbara continues Nick's legacy through organizations and activities aimed at improving the lives of those with autism and changing the perceptions of the public around autism spectrum disorder. Barbara, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, To kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nicholas as a person? Thank you for having me, Kelly. Uh, Nicholas is my favorite subject to talk about. He was my 25-year-old son, and he was intelligent beyond measure that we didn't even know about. Um, He loved music and He loved to cook. He wanted to be a chef. He loved to dance. He was very, very social, um, a bit of an empath. He was very loving and introspective and quite um, well aware of his sense of purpose. We talked about that a lot, and he kind of uh, knew he was a teacher. He knew why he was here, to help change minds and perceptions of the autistic. That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to get an autism diagnosis for Nicholas? Um, I am a special education teacher, full disclosure. So I kind of, um, although I never worked with the autistic population at the time he was born, um, mostly the learning disabled, I kind of started to have a feeling in my mommy gut of a stomach that things were, might be amiss around 15 months old. He wasn't reaching certain milestones, kind of seemed very, um, in his own world, as they say, as much as I hate that term. I got a formal diagnosis at at 17 months old when I took him to a neurologist. They gave me a diagnosis of PDD-NOS, which is pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. It was kind of an umbrella diagnosis they were giving 25 years ago, um, the neurologist told me to stay off the internet and just handed me a bunch of papers and scripts and said, get this service, get this service, get this service. But um, for those that don't know me, I jumped right on the internet and started doing my own research and everything kind of pointed to autism. So it was very um, like a punch in the stomach. It was quite emotional. I remember that evening... um, my husband and I crying over his crib, looking at him as he was sleeping, almost like mourning what we thought was going to be, having to regroup about maybe the possibility of what was going to be. He started um, a full-time job, Nicholas, uh, 20 hours a week of ABA, five hours a week of speech, five hours a week of occupational therapy, and that continued until high school. When you um, received the autism diagnosis, did anyone mention the the 
common comorbidity with epilepsy and seizures? Not at that time. Not when he was a baby, no. It was never brought to my attention. Um, it's not even something I came across in literature because I did so much research. Um, I didn't find it. Not, not 25 years ago, no. And when was Nicholas ultimately diagnosed with epilepsy? When did he have his first seizure? His first seizure was around puberty. It was um, a, what used to be called a grand mal seizure. It was a drop seizure. Now they call it tonic-clonic. We didn't know what was happening. It was so frightening. And we took him to the hospital and that embarked us. Um, the word epilepsy was never used. I have to be honest with you. How weird was that in the hospital? Um, it was very much a downplayed. They said, you have to see a neurologist. We did that, and we went into a um, video EEG study to study to see if he was having any other seizures, and he wasn't. So he was put on a medication, and we were kind of sent on our way, and his seizures were managed for, for years. Um, he kind of would have one to two a year, often when we were on a vacation, as oddly as that sounds. I don't know if the anxiety, the lack of you know, routine. I don't know what to make of that, but that's what happened to us. And I never dove into epilepsy the way I dove into autism. It wasn't something that ever smacked us in the face. It was not, it was rare. It was rare. One to two a year. Mm -hmm. I think we often uh, cling to or dive deeper into the diagnoses that affect our daily life the most. You know, I often um, hear this when the, the autism diagnosis comes first and then the epilepsy diagnosis because that, that the autism piece is so impactful on daily life that um, the epilepsy doesn't, doesn't register as much. And, you know, and to a certain extent, sometimes perhaps it doesn't, it doesn't need to. So you said, you know, his seizures were not controlled, but they were managed with um, anti-seizure medications. Did you try any other treatments for him? Not at that time. He, you know, we, we, when, if he had a breakthrough seizure, we switched to med. That's basically how the treatment protocol went. We'd go back to the neurologist they were never alarmed at one seizure, like, you know, like, okay, he had another one. It was a year ago. It was never like, like I said, I never had this pressing feeling like, oh boy, we really need to get a hold of this or we need to do something until 2020 came and uh, Nicholas suffered nine seizures in one year. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what was the response to that, to this increase in seizures? How did you... Um... How did you cope and, and treat that? Well, I wasn't sure what caused it. I wish I know, but I, I knew, but I don't. And how I coped with that was um, we went back to um, NYU Langone, New York Epilepsy Center, which is a world-renowned center. We were under the care of Dr. Davinsky and his team. Different approaches were discussed. Of course, they wanted to chase yet more medicine, they knew I was very conservative when it came to meds because Nick was able to communicate that the meds didn't make him feel so great. So I really didn't want to keep piling on one medicine after another. So I kind of started 
searching for some alternative methods. And that's how I found um, a great doctor, Dr. Carly Bell over at Veraheal, um, who was a cannabinoid MD doctor who was studying all the terpenes in the different um, medical marijuana to deal with some of the comorbid conditions. Nick did have some OCD. I don't know if that was increased by the seizure meds, but it seemed to exacerbate when he was on those meds. Um, you know, his mood sometimes could be on and off. And so I went down the more natural road of the cannabis and he took a oil tincture under the tongue, um, a gummy at night to help him sleep and relax. And it worked. He was seizure free from August until he passed in May of 2023. I just, I, I'm so incredibly sorry for, for Nick's loss. Thanks. Um, epilepsy is so cruel and um, it's really frustrating and unfair. And I'm just, um, my heart breaks with yours. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Uh, now, Nick uh, was nonverbal, which doesn't necessarily equate to non-communicative, which um, has been a common misunderstanding in the past. Can you share with us how you discovered that Nick was able to communicate? Sure. It's funny, you just said nonverbal is not the same as non-communicative. Nick's uh, mantra in life became non-speaking does not equal non-thinking. And that is something he wanted the world to know. And uh, I certainly want the world to know that too. Around 2012, I went to see a seminar of um, a very nice um, woman, Chantal Cecile Kira. She, was, she had written a book on puberty I was always ahead of the game. So Nick wasn't even in puberty, just maybe embarking in another year. And I went to see her seminar and she introduced her son, Jeremy, and he came up to the podium. I did not think for one moment he was going to be able to say anything because I saw him, how he was acting very disconnected and almost appeared how most people would perceive not with us. Um, and he started spelling on an, a tablet and said, my name is Jeremy. I'm 21. I have autism. And I was blown away. And um, she told me it was um, rapid prompting method and that Jeremy had seen um, Soma. I can't really pronounce her. Mudapate. It's a lot of consonants in Los Angeles. And Chantal told me to go online. She told me she had moved to Austin, Texas, see if I could you know, look it up. And I did. And that night I had booked a trip. Me and Nick were off to Texas. And we went to see Soma the week before Thanksgiving and his life changed dramatically. The cost of the whole course of his autism changed dramatically. His world changed. It's like he was set free. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $90 million to fund more than 280 epilepsy research grants in 17 countries. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. I would love for you to explain what the rapid prompting method is and how that works. Sure. So rapid prompting is a, um, it's like a teach 
tell and ask paradigm. Something is presented to them through, you know, listening, auditory, something's read to them or told to them. Um, and then immediately they're asked to answer a question based on something they just heard. And it's a hierarchy of learning because it starts with the concrete, something they just heard. And I'll give you something very simple. The boy lived in the blue house on the hill. And we would say, what color was the house that the boy lived on? You know, it, it lived in on the hill. And then we would, it starts out very basic, giving them a choice between a, a torn paper choice, blue and red. And they would hopefully pick blue and then, okay, can you spell blue? And then they're given a stencil with letterboard broken up and into, you know, sections that we never just start with 26 letters, uh, it would be too overwhelming. And then we would help them prompt them. That's where the word rapid prompting method comes in, prompt them to spell the word blue if they couldn't by teaching them to point. And, you know, sometimes it's really like a motor planning issue. This needs to be taught. We can't assume every kid can can point. So it's a hierarchy of learning and it goes from the concrete questions that they just hear and it goes all along to open communication where they're expressing their thoughts and feelings. But that does not come right away. That comes through lots of back and forth practice. So it is a process. This is not, um, certainly not something that happens overnight. How, how long did the process take from going and receiving the training to Nicholas being able to do open-ended communication? Well, um, Nicholas was able to spell right with Soma in Texas and it was just life-changing. He answered questions like she asked him, do you know what a marathon is? And he said, running for a cause. And then she, he read her a story about it's a very depressing story about a man in prison in a quarry in the thee, thou, though ages of like the middle ages. And Nicholas said, it's better to have autism than to be in prison. And those are open-ended answers. Um, again, he was 12. He wasn't like five. So he, we were just shocked. Where did he learn to spell? Where did, how, how did he get this language? And then I thought he was going to be able to do that for me and everyone else that was working with him. So I came home and I told the world and I told every teacher and therapist that he had, and I wanted everyone to do it. And Nick just shut down because really and truly, I didn't realize you need to master this with one person, almost like a dance partner before you can teach someone else to do that same dance with them. So it was a process. It took me almost two years to get Nicholas like you know, out there fluent. A lot of people didn't believe us. They didn't think it was his words. They that the, the teachers that were working with him thought I was crazy. Um, I was on them. Please stay with it. Please, let's keep going. Please, please, please. And it finally happened. And he broke through with one very special teacher, Suzanne Canella. And then from there, she, you know, turnkey and he went to having proficiency on the letter board with a dozen people. Wow. But a lot of a lot happened, you know, in between those two years. It was a lot of fighting, Kelly. I had to convince the powers that be who were testing him at um, with standardized tests where he would score between like one and four percentile, which was like, you know, his IEP was like for a baby, like matching things and sorting colors. I had to convince him to please test him with the letter board, let him answer the questions. And they said, oh, we can't do that because then it's not standardized. 
So I begged them, okay, then report your standardized way, but also report in there that you did this another way. When they did it through with the letter board and it came out in the above average intelligence range, the, the, the examiner was crying. She was apologizing to me. She said, I have never seen anything like this. I don't even know how to report this. I'm going to have to you know, word this because she did have to say that he bombed on the standardized way, which was talking to him, but he was non-speaking. So he certainly couldn't answer those questions. And then she reported that he did it this way. That was the floodgates that opened for Nicholas because his IEP changed. It was no longer matching and sorting. It became meaningful. He was doing high school level math without paper. He was able to do algebra in his head. He learned about history and was reading college level material. He was the happiest I had ever seen him because he felt like, wow, they found me. I'm, I'm, I'm free. It is so exciting to hear. And I mean, that must have just been such an incredible experience for you and for the whole family. My family, our family got to know Nick in a way it was such a gift because we, we would have never been able to know his true feelings, his thoughts, his opinions, that he was funny and had a sense of humor. And the thing I hold the dearest to me now that he's not here was how appreciative he was of us. He knew how hard he said, Mom, we're a team. You work so hard for me. You're giving me such a good life. I, I can't even tell you what those words mean to me today because I probably would have never heard them had he never been able to communicate. But I knew how much he loved us and he knew how much we were advocating for him. And he was just, he had a very good life, very happy life. I mean, Nick is so incredible. He didn't just stop with being able to communicate personally this was something that he became an advocate for to to bring this communication to other individuals who were nonverbal. Tell us about the seminars that he used to to attend and teach and the impact that he left on his community. I don't know if you can see my tattoo. It says Nick the Changer. And he got this nickname, and I wear a bracelet too that says Nick the Changer. He got that nickname because while he was out speaking in those engagements and seminars, he literally changed perceptions. He changed minds. He changed hearts. He gave hope to so many because I remember parents sitting in that audience crying, thinking, can this be my child? Can my child do this? Um, a lot of them didn't think. They said, oh, no, Nick has something you know, special. Nick is cognitively with us. And I said, no, no, no. Nick presented the same way as your child. Nick looked like he wasn't with us for many, many years, but he was listening. He was learning. So I tell parents, don't think your child can't do this. So Nick did live Q&A when he would do um, these seminars with me. And he answered questions to parents. They were just amazed. And Every, if I had a penny for every time someone said to me, I will never look at an autistic kid the same way again after meeting Nick, I, I would be so rich because that's all everyone said after they met him. They were so encouraged and he was so honest. He told them what it felt like to be autistic. He even gave them insight to sometimes they would ask, why is my child doing this or that? He would tell them, you know, your child is frustrated or your child is um, being aggressive because they have no way to communicate. I mean, he just was 
so, like I said, introspective. And, you know, he and I talked a lot. There was times where he didn't want to do the seminars. Sometimes he said, mom, I'm tired of doing these seminars when, if there's no action, he wanted people to take action. Like, please let's bring this to the masses. He didn't want to just talk about it. He wanted action. I watched a video um, that showed Nick communicating. And so it is, when you talk about the letter board, that is what it is. It is a, a white sheet that has the alphabet written on it. And then he is pointing to each um, letter or number and spelling out as he goes along to to say what he is looking to say. Is that is that correct? Is that how that works? Well, it starts out very low tech with the stencils in sections, and then you move to a 26 letter board, 26 letter letter board. It's laminated, and then you can move on to a keyboard or an iPad or a, a phone. You know, it's a hierarchy. We prompt them in the beginning with verbal prompts, get that letter up there, right in the corner. You got it. Go for it. Right next door. You know, we'll prompt them to get it down pat, but we're not, you know, touching them or anything like that. But it is um, up and coming um, and spelling to communicate and I ask, which is an organization that um, we, you know, modeled, we model and work from is um, global now. Tell tell us about IASK and, and what that stands for and what that organization does. Right. IASK is, uh, stands for the International Association for Spelling to Communicate. And it is um, a global organization of individuals um, from the non-speaking and neurodivergent communities. And they seek to make spelling accessible to all speakers, unreliable speakers and non-speakers. And they have many practitioners all over the world now. Um, Elizabeth Vossler, who um, is the head of that, goes all over and does these uh, outreaches. And she's been to countries and cities all over the world. And practitioners come out of the program. And that's one of the reasons I ask was born, because we needed people to learn this, to bring it to the community. One person um, can't do it all. So we needed all these practitioners to be trained and come out there and spread the word. And Nick was an ambassador for everyone, including all the other spellers that there are out there. There are many prominent spellers who are also ambassadors. Nick certainly wasn't the only one. I don't know uh, if you or your listeners have seen things in the news. It's been on the news where valedictorians from colleges like Elizabeth Bonker have been chosen and they are non-speakers. They spoke, type their, uh, you know, valedictorian speech. That's incredible. I mean, sort of to your point, it shouldn't be, right? Like it should just be um, understood as another form of communication. And it's not incredible. It is not, um, you know, earth shattering because they're, people with thoughts and there's no reason to think otherwise. Um, it's, it's just a disability like any other. Right. Well, one thing I want to stress is it's not, uh, as simple as just putting a letter board on just someone that it, it is, there is a, a whole hierarchy and protocol. And one piece that we have not addressed, that's really important that almost every single speller addresses 
is that they are trapped in very tricky bodies that don't cooperate with their minds. So that becomes a very big motor and sensory challenge of how the world is coming at them, how they perceive the world and how they act out towards that world. So many of our non-speakers who appeared not to be with us are channeling, trying so hard to control that unreliable body, the body that's not in sync with their minds. So they appear behavioral. They appear, you know, to be stimming and moving and have uncontrolled, you know, issues. Those are the poor kids that fall through the cracks that get put in the classes with the lowest expectations. Parents, I tell them all the time when we speak, you can't keep the bar low because that's where they're going to meet you. You need to raise that bar and they'll meet you there. You have to presume competence. You have to treat them with dignity and respect and talk to them like nothing was wrong with them. They are in there listening. They are learning. It's an output problem, not an input problem. So it's really, really important to understand that there's a big component to help regulate those bodies before they can spell. It's not like you can spell and then we're going to deal with your behavior or your your sensory issues or your motor challenges. No, we work with the body simultaneously while we're teaching the spelling. That's a very important distinction that there is um, all of these other aspects that are at play that are um, compounding the ability to communicate. Barbara, you mentioned Nick being able to tell others, other parents, what was going on with their child or what they were experiencing or why they were doing something. What did Nicholas say about living with autism? Well, I'm going to, if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to read his words right from this book because he wrote a chapter in a book. Uh, called Leaders Around Me, Autobiographies of Autistics Who Type, Point, and Spell to Communicate. And um, Dr. Edlin Pena from Cal State um, Lutheran chose Nicholas as one of the authors, and he was so floored and honored to be calling himself an author. So this is something else I have to always uh, treasure. But I will read this for you, what it's, what he said. It said, Soma opened my world and gave me the key to unlock every challenging door I was facing. I learned to communicate the most freeing obstacle in my life. Since that time, I've been practicing my spelling and teaching my body to cooperate, which has been a difficult struggle. I now had a voice and a way to reach the world. When I was little, I knew I was different. My first recollection was when I joined a typical preschool. I could see that the other kids had more control over their bodies and everything seemed so easy for them. I knew at that point I was going to have to fight hard in order to keep up and fit in. Having autism is a minute by minute challenge and people don't realize that my body can be a total disorganized mess. My impulsive movements, stims, and complete lack of control at times can be exhausting. There are times, though, that I feel autism is a gift, and I see it as my way in which to advocate for myself and others like me. Ever since I've learned to communicate, I've been wanting to find many ways to tell my story and spread awareness about how autism works. There were moments when I wanted to give up and stay hidden and run away, 
but I had so many people encouraging me and supporting me. I knew it was time to start helping others at that point. I had to put my fears aside and start living for myself. If I wanted to grow more independent, I needed to face the world and tell my story. I've done numerous speeches, conferences, and seminars. I've spoken to schools, committees, agencies, colleges, and even doctors. Surprisingly, they all listened and accepted what I was saying. For the first time, large amounts of people were finally listening to me, and I was amazed. This gave me the courage and determination to keep going. Wow. I, I, to hear that he recognized in preschool that he was different, that there is, is heartbreaking. <laughs> it, it breaks my heart, too, because he was in the uh, what we call here a six to one to one program, which was with which was the class for the most challenging many times for the behaviorally challenged because they were low considered the lower functioning of the bunch. And he always got pulled in there because he didn't speak and he bombed on all those tests. And that's where he was placed. But in spite of all that, he had incredible teachers. And I, as his mother, was that parent that um, probably everyone wanted to run from at first. I was the, uh, rewriting his IEP and making sure what he did not get in school, he got at home after school. And he was able to have a very full life. And for that, I'm so thankful. Now, I know that you co-founded Crimson Rise together with Nick. Tell us about that organization. Well, first was the Grace Foundation when Nick was really small. Uh, the Grace Foundation is an acronym for uh, getting resources for autistic children's equality. It's no longer just children. We've evolved now and we also serve adults. But it was founded in 2000. It now serves hundreds of kids. Um, myself and others founded, other parents founded it um, because we just felt we needed more than more services than what was out there. So, you know, we have respite programs, day programs, of events, and we're, are, we're committed to supporting and educating and enhancing and empowering the quality of life for children and families that are dealing with ASD. So uh, Grace came first. And then after years of, you know, um, flourishing, um, Nick started to spell and we started to, you know, put our gears in motion for adult life and what was going to happen in the future. And my son and three other non-speakers, um, Tages, Chris, um, and Will, uh, started Crimson Rise, which is um, an organization founded, the first one ever founded by non-speakers um, with sensory impairments, uh, movement and communication differences. That's important. And we are committed to providing, you know, communication access and regulation support so that they can enjoy everything that everyone else enjoys. We really want them to have a quality of life and have all the things come to them that they could never participate in because, let's face it, they were the most marginalized of the autistic population, the non-speaking, and opportunities don't always come their way because they can't communicate. So we wanted to make sure that together with their allies that they can, you know, we could create and sustain inclusive, enriching opportunities for their life. It is such an impressive 
legacy that Nick has left, how do you want him to be remembered? I want Nick to be remembered as a pioneer, an advocate, someone who broke through and wanted to make a difference in this world for others. He didn't just keep it for himself. Like you said, he really, really was about helping others. So I want people to remember him as the changer because that's who he was. He changed minds, hearts, perceptions, and I want him to be remembered forever. We will remember him. Thank you so, so very much. This has been an incredible conversation and I hope opens the the eyes and ears um, for people better understanding those that are nonverbal. Thank you, Kelly. Be well. Thank you, Barbara, for sharing the amazing and inspirational journey of your son, Nicholas. We wish you all the best as you carry on Nick's legacy and continue to improve the lives of those touched by autism spectrum disorder. Mothers, like Barbara, are often on the front lines advocating for their children with health challenges and disabilities. 25 years ago, Cure Epilepsy was founded by a group of mothers who could no longer accept the status quo of epilepsy care. In that time, Cure Epilepsy has raised more than $90 million to fund epilepsy research and other initiatives that will lead the way to a cure for epilepsy. If you would like to help us achieve our goal of a world without epilepsy, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Cure Epilepsy, inspiring hope and delivering impact. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.